Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. According to our friend Google, a contradiction is a combination of statements, ideas, or features of a situation that are opposed to one another. According to St. Paul, this combination is a mechanism of wisdom, as in, I will undermine power by exercising power, or I will create heterarchy by imposing hierarchy. Welcome to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 114 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have reached chapter 11, and Paul continues to consolidate and solidify his discussion of power, weakness, and hierarchy, and how the household of the church should function according to his teaching. Right away here in verse 1, Richard, we have this beautiful verse that is always misinterpreted by everyone. Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And this is an extremely important verse because it gets at the heart of the way that people rebel against the gospel. We think, in our current historical context, that we can become better than our father, better than our teacher. Authority figures in our life who function as examples for us. And we talk about leading by example. We want our leaders to be one of us. We want to say that they should model behaviors and that we should follow the behaviors that they model for us. There's all this cheap, vain talk that all revolves around bringing the authority figure down to your level and making the authority figure your reference. And you want to do that because it takes pressure off of you on every level. It allows you to become the judge because the authority figure is a human being and is flawed de facto, which means their example is flawed, which means that there's less pressure on you. It's not loving your neighbor if you're all equals. There's nothing about equality or rights in the gospel. It's love when you stand to lose something. Now, when Paul talks about being an imitator, what he's saying is the same thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, that you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the statement in Matthew is a hyperbolic expression of 1 Corinthians. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew, by pushing it to the extreme, is that you have to be perfect like your Heavenly Father, but we all know you'll never be perfect like your Heavenly Father because you're not God. In other words, as the paterfamilias, Paul is setting a bar that cannot be attained. He is setting a bar that is beyond your reach. He is showing you what the real pressure of the Torah is. 
to set a rule and a measure that you cannot meet. And why is this at the heart of the gospel? It's not just because of the pressure this puts on people in the assembly. It's because when people hear the rule of the gospel, they want to prove that they can do it. And you can't. The whole system begins with your defeat. And it continues with reminding you of your defeat until the Lord comes for your sake. So you can't be better than Paul. You can't become like Paul. People use this verse as a way of undermining the teacher. They use it incorrectly, undermining the teacher. by saying, Oh, the teacher isn't living up to the example of Christ, therefore I don't need to follow. This is how people use it. In fact, what this is for is to undermine the student to understand that the student is not capable of living up to the example and has to work in order to move the needle just a little bit towards where the teacher is while understanding they'll never get there. The word mimitis in Greek, an imitator, the one who imitates, sounds very similar to the word mimnisko in Greek, which means to remind, to remember. When your father or your teacher sets an example or sets a bar that you can't reach, it's a constant reminder of your inadequacy. I cannot tell you how many times as a priest over the years when I have preached a difficult sermon that has a shaming element or a punitive element where it puts pressure on the assembly that you can't do this or you're not doing this, people always come back to show me they can do it. That's the human instinct is to prove and to defend and justify. And Paul has set up a hierarchy in the household of the church in which you can't justify and you can't prove. Just accept it. You are lower on the food chain and you are incapable of doing what Paul does, yet God will demand it of you just as he does in the Gospel of Matthew. That's the key here with verse 1 of chapter 11. And any other interpretation goes against the body of evidence, not just in this letter, but in the entire canon. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firm to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And the word here for tradition is paradosis, which means the things that Paul handed down. And the key is he's referring to what he has written down. There's nothing else outside of Paul's letters that were handed down. You can't find a treasure chest with pictures of Paul's mother or his favorite hymns and collections of writings that he liked outside of what he wrote. All you have is what was handed down in the story of his letters. And we are to hold firmly to them just as he delivered them to us. Again, you cannot add to or subtract from what Paul has written. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. I think the importance here is we see this contrast where he says, I praise you because you remember in everything and hold firmly to the traditions. But, like you mentioned before, Father, you teach a difficult sermon. People say, look, I did this thing. Great, you did this thing. Let me remind you the things that you're constantly not doing still. Exactly. So just because you are an imitator of this one piece of this one lesson that was taught at one time doesn't now mean you're on the same level as the teacher and now you can have a discussion about whether the teacher's teaching is a good teaching or not or whether the teacher is doing a good job of manifesting their own teaching or whatever you are not now because you did one thing the expert you know like our teacher used to say the professor reads a hundred books so they can say da 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 
so that the student can stand up and say, just because you're able to say, doesn't mean now you can have a discussion with the professor because you have now 99 and a half books more to read before you can even begin to get where the professor is. So here, where Paul talks about Christ being the head of the man and the man the head of a woman, I urge our listeners, once again, not to fall in the trap of trying to justify this in an egalitarian society and explain how Paul didn't really mean it and Romans were this way and Paul was operating in Roman culture. No, I think Paul's being very clear. Just like Jesus is clear in the Gospels when he talks to the centurion, there's a pecking order. Everybody takes orders from someone. And the reason he blessed the centurion is because the centurion, as a soldier, understood that there was a pecking order. Because if he knew and understood that Jesus could give an order to his slaves, that means he also understood that Jesus was taking orders from somebody else. Now, what's powerful here, it's much more intelligent than the post-Enlightenment obsession with equal rights. Much more sophisticated than that ideological framework. Because Paul is showing you that there is a hierarchy and everybody has to bow to the man, ultimately in deference to God. But he'll show you later that the hierarchy is functional. Because although the husband is the head of the wife in a Roman household, both before God are on the same level because they both originate from God. So he shows you that all this discussion about woman coming from man and so forth is a hoax. It's a didactic mechanism meant to prevent anyone from becoming arrogant. The point here is it's not about gender, it's about hierarchy. Because you could just as easily say the mother is the head of the son, or the matriarch is the head of her children. It's not about gender. He's explaining that everyone has a place in the food chain and they have to submit. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. So now he's showing you how men can be insubordinate. But every woman who has her own head covered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. He's dealing with male and female the way he deals with Jew and Greek. He's putting them both down. You have a vertical hierarchy in which everyone bows their head, but in the bowing of their head, the hierarchy becomes horizontal. That's the paradox of 1 Corinthians. This is what I'm trying to say about power. We all know the priest not only is no better than the people, but in many cases he's probably far worse than the people, even self-righteous, but it's immaterial. That's what scripture does. It takes everything that you want to make concrete and it warps it in such a way that it extracts what's good from the thing, but emasculates what's human from the thing. Now here, Dr. John Fotopoulos explains with respect to head coverings that there were Roman traditions about propriety and humility and the importance of women covering their head during worship. In Paul's letter, the Christians are taking advantage of their freedom. So Fotopoulos argues that this is an example where Paul is saying head coverings, no head coverings, it doesn't matter. But if it offends the Romans, you better wear head coverings. Presumably, freedom in Christ was being interpreted as we don't have to wear head coverings anymore. But that's problematic. It's not that there's an issue with women becoming priests. There's an issue with people demanding that they have a right to do anything, male or female. And that's very consistent with what Paul has been teaching all along about the abuse of knowledge. The Corinthians have been lambasted this whole letter because they use their knowledge 
to the wrong ends for the sake of puffing themselves up. So that interpretation would be very consistent with what Paul has been teaching. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Here everyone is cringing. Oh my God, are you saying that woman is less than man? Then comes verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. This is Genesis. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. She's still your mother. And there is no chicken or egg discussion. God is the parent who produced both of you. All along, for 10 chapters, Paul has been trying to undermine your understanding of what power is. That power is there for you to submit. Power is there for you to serve. Power is there for you to undermine within yourself. So then to go and read this verse to say, oh, this now gives the right of men to do whatever they want over women is a complete undermining of what Paul is trying to teach. If he says that man is over the woman, what he's been saying all along is that there is a duty to submit. And all things, he says, all things originate from God. I want to make another point, though, about Genesis, because we often talk about woman being taken from the man as pertaining to the lesser status of woman, but this is an incorrect reading of Genesis, because the woman is the right hand of God's power against the man. Because as Tarazi argues, God offered man a partner, and man wasn't happy with what God offered. So God took a piece of man's own flesh, a piece of his own bone, and he made something from the man, which is a play on this idea of the works of the flesh. So he created the woman to put man's reflection in his face. That's how the text functions. So the woman has a special status that is akin to the status of the apostle in this letter which is to be the right hand of God's power against the other, just because, to be the thorn in the flesh. Why is the woman called Eve, Haya? Because she is the source of life. God uses the woman in order to produce life. So you are always going to have to submit to a woman, whether male or female, you have to submit to a woman because this is the route that your life has come through. Now, in pagan traditions, because they don't follow the vertical horizontal system of hierarchy in 1 Corinthians you have this acknowledgement that the woman is the mother of life but if you don't then emasculate her and emasculate the male you have the creation of another god in your image so here woman functions as mother and the man comes out of the womb of the woman but that doesn't make her better than man and man isn't better than woman that's the difference between scripture and everybody else when you come and talk about how the priest should be one of the people, you sound to me like a neo-pagan, and you will never convince me otherwise. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? 
for her hair is given to her for a covering, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And the key thing here in verse 16, if one is inclined to be contentious. These are the societal norms. Paul is not saying that it's wrong for a man to have long hair or it's wrong for a woman to uncover her head. He's saying that if eating meat causes my brother any, any suffering, I will never eat meat again. If uncovering my head in church shames or embarrasses Roman women who are outside of our household, then cover your head and vice versa with respect to men. No one else does it any differently in the church. If you're going to do it differently, it's just because you're inclined to be an individual. Correct. And my whole letter, I've been trying to tell you that unity of the church is what we're trying to accomplish here. And you're just trying to start an argument. So settle down and just do things the way everyone else does. Don't try to make a point. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you have come together not for the better, but for the worse. This contrasts so well with verse 2 where it says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything. And then in verse 3, the big but. And this is a continuation of the but, not a continuation of the praise. So it's very interesting, the kind of sideways compliment. It's like, yes, you do a very good job of doing this one particular thing. However, when you come together, it's all wickedness anyway. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. So he just got done fighting through this issue of men and women and hierarchy and structure and order in order to eliminate divisions between men and women. Paul's solution for the gender divide is radically different than the progressive solution because Paul's solution stinks for all parties. Nobody wins. And this follows one of the major themes we've had throughout the letter, which is how knowledge has been divisive among them. So every time the people think they have it figured out, he then proves to them how by figuring it out, they undermine the assembly and therefore undermine the community, breaking it apart. And this is why the way that he has been delivering this message of submission to hierarchy and love is by talking about divisions within the community. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be evident among you. You want to have factions so that people can be justified in what they're doing. So you want to have a divide between male and female, so that when the woman takes off her veil, she can say, I am right and justified in taking off my veil. Or if the man wants to grow long hair and offend Roman society, he can be justified in growing long hair because, after all, we have our liberty in Christ and you can't tell me what to do. You want to be justified. You want to have a pedestal or a leg to stand on. And Paul's saying, with all due respect, no, N-O. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. This is what we said in last week's episode. You can call it the body and blood of Jesus. You can recite your liturgy a thousand times. You are eating meat offered to idols if you're not behaving correctly. If you are, in fact, eating the Lord's Supper, it means that it is the Lord who is at the head of the table. As the head of the table, he is the one who's crucified, who's submitted completely to his Father. So his submission is key. 
And by partaking in this, you are benefiting from him sacrificing himself. And by benefiting from the one who sacrificed himself, it shames you into complete submission. This is what distinguishes Eastern liturgy, not the theology of the liturgy. Everybody has theology. What distinguishes the Eastern liturgy is that it follows the household order and structure of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In order for it to be the Lord's Supper, everything has to be in good order with the head sitting at the table and the ekonomos operating as his proxy and everyone keeping their place. We are not all equals in the liturgy. It's beautiful. In the Byzantine tradition, there is a separate chair height for the protopsaltis than the rest of the chanters. Everything is structured according to hierarchy. You want to know which hymn to sing after the entrance? You better know which feast takes precedent. Well, they're all the same feast. That's not what the text says. There is hierarchy and order and structure. It matters who carries what when and in what order you stand. I could go on and on with examples, which is why when you try to make out of Byzantine Christianity something that reflects Protestant egalitarianism, the liturgy ceases to function. It becomes useless. You are taking the one thing from the liturgy that reflects the kingdom of God, which is the Lord's power expressed in the command chain of the Roman household. And in the submission that then we are supposed to be following as the teaching that controls who the community is and what the community does, is we are all bound to submit to one another and if we are submitting to one another then you can't have divisions in the community so if there are divisions in the community you're not manifesting the teaching for in your eating each one takes his own supper first you are selfish and you put your own needs first and you're doing your own thing and because of that one is hungry and another is drunk there's no order everybody does what they want if the ekonomos is not setting the order at the table, people are left out. If you take a vote, people are left out. Power in scripture is not evil and it is not good. It is functional. Power is imparted to the scroll in order to maintain order for the sake of the weak. And they have taken the power themselves at the expense of the weak. And that is the issue. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? You're coming to church to satisfy your material, worldly wants? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? You want to insist that we pass a tray at church so that when someone has nothing to put in the tray, they're exposed as not being able to contribute so that you feel justified that you're giving money? Show me your tray so I can burn it. That's the idea. So by eating and drinking their own food, then it shames the ones who don't have as much. And then it's about giving and showing and showing off. And the problem is that once you have an assembly like this, then you have a division between the rich and the poor when the rich are supposed to be submitting to the poor and making themselves poorer than the poor. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Paul is never praising you. But he doesn't go out of his way to say that he is not praising you. But this is, as I said, the consolidation of his argument against the arrogant in the church in Roman Corinth. And he is explicitly saying, I shall not praise you. I am your father. You can try to imitate me. You will never measure up. And I will never approve of you. 
and you can run off and tell your psychologist how sad you are that Paul wasn't proud of you. If that's how you want to spend the rest of your life whining, knock yourself out. Or you can be mindful of Paul's example and bow your head before the Lord and do your best effort to honor his example knowing you can never measure up. Choose. Okay, maybe you're doing this one thing. Fantastic. Let's talk about what you're not doing. And what are you doing? You're creating a hierarchy that is not of God. It's a worldly hierarchy where you're setting yourself above others in order to afflict them, in order to take advantage of them, rather than submitting to them and making sure that the entire community coheres rather than create divisions in the community. Your egalitarianism means you want to put your boot on the neck of your father. And this is unacceptable. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he mentions the betrayal because that is what he is accusing the intellectuals in the church of being guilty of. Betrayal of Jesus. Because if you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. He is referring to the body politic of the church. If you offend the least of these in the church because of your theology, you are offending the body of Jesus Christ. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here the word anamnesis is a different term, but the concept of remembering ties to the commandment in verse 1 to be imitators. You can never live up to Paul's example, let alone the great shaming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how can you hold your head up? If you remember his shame, how can you boast? He submitted to others. He submitted to the will of God in spite of being betrayed. He didn't feel sorry for himself. He didn't claim his rights. He didn't claim his right. He didn't feel sorry for himself. When he was afflicted, when he was betrayed, he didn't go out and get them. He didn't cause a division. He kissed the one who betrayed him. He gave himself, he gave his life so that the community could be together, so that the rich and the poor could then eat together at the same table, that Jew and Gentile could eat together at the same table, man and woman could eat together at the same table. And by your creating divisions, you now betray him. Instead of eating from his body to be a part of the Lord's Supper, you're taking advantage of him. This is Pauline Kung Fu because he is imposing household order and hierarchy in order to teach you weakness. Nobody does this and no one will ever do it. I can't imagine a more unpopular way of teaching people humility. It's impossible to accept. He keeps the hierarchy, but in the Roman household, hierarchy is defined by power. He says, okay, fine. Now let me tell you what power is. So he keeps the hierarchy. The hierarchy exists but power is completely flipped on its head. So you can't have one without the other. You can't say, oh, well, we now know what power is, therefore we have no more hierarchy. No, 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 we do have hierarchy. Oh, well, we have hierarchy, then people are gonna be abusive. No, 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 because that's not what power is. Correct. You have to understand both pieces. The hierarchy has to stay in place, but it has to undermine what one understands to be power. This sorts out our problems between the men and the women. When Americans rebel against hierarchy, they are not concerned about abuse. And all you need do is look how they treat everyone else. And we know they're not concerned about abuse. They're concerned about their own comfort. Because if there is hierarchy, if you have a boss at work, there is someone to hold you to account. Not someone you imagine 
in the back of your mind who holds all the power, but someone in your face who wields it. Bottom line. When Mother Teresa says that she doesn't become poor like the people that she's serving, the reason she gives is that she's not worthy. Mother Teresa was known as the little tyrant because she believed 100% in hierarchy. When you entered her order, you came in, you were tonsured, you came out with your orders, which country you're going to, and a plane ticket, and you got on the next plane. And it wasn't her authority. It was the authority of the rule, which she wielded unapologetically because she was the economos. She was in Paul's place in that household. End of subject. Yet at the same time, she understood the meaning of power that Paul is trying to convey, which is that those that they are serving are the ones who are ahead of us in power. That's how you can manifest both of these sides, but you can't have one without the other. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying... This cup is the New Testament. And yes, it refers to the text of the New Testament. The graphi that we are reading right now on this podcast. In my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Every time you eat and every time you drink, you should be put to shame. You should be reminded that this body and this blood is offered to you and a price was paid so that it could be offered to you. And you can't measure up to that price. If you understand this when you approach the chalice, then we are talking about the household of faith, and then God is your Father, and this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The submission that Jesus performs through his self-sacrifice is the blood that binds you to God. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are not proclaiming in human terms his victory or your victory. This whole letter has been about your failure. Paul is showing the church the meaning of the curse of death in Deuteronomy. The curse of the law is death, and this is what it means. Your failure, your loss. But it's not your loss nihilistically. Jesus didn't lose nihilistically, which is how people interpret the Antiochian school because they're so egotistical. They think that if you have an end, that means everything has an end. That's not what it says in Ecclesiastes. Jesus died in order to produce life, and now, even though you're temporary, you've been offered the gift of this life. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to sit here and live for yourself and commit transgression against the cross of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to do what Christ did and give your life for others? And this is the death of the understanding of Roman power. Because you're proclaiming that you have a Lord who died. That you're following the one who died in a humiliating fashion, in a cursed fashion. And this is the one you're proclaiming as the head of your household. And therefore, he puts you to shame for not sacrificing yourself but in fact, puffing up your ego in the face of the others in the assembly. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You're taking advantage of what was sacrificed for you. But a man must examine himself, meaning are you functioning according to the teaching, according to the gospel, in any setting, inside or outside the church? which is what Paul has been teaching you how to do with practical examples all throughout the letter. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. You have to discern. You are always on thin ice, whether you are at the Sympathine and they are worshiping Venus, or you are in the church and they claim to be worshiping the scriptural God. You don't know, church or no church, you can't tell who's being worshipped unless you are discerning the application of the gospel in every context with a functional mindset. It's not about identity. It's not about what you profess. Everybody says, Lord, Lord, big deal. It's about how you act. Are you submitting? Are you submitting? And I can tell what you're submitting to and to whom you're submitting by how you treat each other. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. What he's saying here is very clever. It's classic Paul. It's the same mentality as the prophets. Everyone pays a price. The question is, will your suffering be useful, or will it be a waste? So when Paul is talking here about people being weak and sick, this is the way he's talking. It's not as though the body and blood are magic, and if you touch them and you're not worthy, you'll get sick. Because everyone gets sick and dies. Everyone loses. Everyone fails. Everyone falls asleep in the end. But how do you conduct yourself as one who has been afflicted? Everyone gets sick. And so everyone now feels the pressure of Paul's warning. Nobody can approach communion saying, oh, I'm healthy, so I'm okay. Because sooner or later, they're going to get sick. That's the trick. The nice thing, too, is that he creates a reminder. Every time that someone dies, every time that someone gets sick, it's a reminder. Are we submitting? Are we following the law that was given to us? But if we judged ourselves rightly, parenthetically, which is impossible, which is why all of you will eventually get sick and die, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And here you can't say, aha, see, it's the Lord who disciplines, not the head of the household. I beg to differ. In the whole letter, Paul has been disciplining you. Last I checked, he's not God. He's a man. And in Paul's absence, he's going to send one of his other disciples, like Timothy, to discipline you. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. So this is not coming from this person that you can easily dismiss because you don't like the way that they talk to you or they don't use the correct tone with you or whatever. This is discipline from the Lord. This is a reminder of the teaching. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Don't rush to fill yourself up. Wait for the other. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. And I love this verse because he is saying, you better believe that I am bringing order to this household with the gospel. So don't try to do anything. I'll tell you what to do. I will direct you. It's perhaps a better way, although the word arrange is nice. It's a nice translation of the Greek because the whole thing is about household order. And arrange has more of that sense of putting things in order than directing. But the word could be interpreted both ways. This verse makes me laugh because I'm trying to think, what are the remaining matters that he didn't cover yet? It seems like nobody knows how to follow the teaching in any way, and even the way that they think they know has already been undermined in the last 10 chapters. I'm just wondering what remaining matters there might be, but they would probably just have to be specific instances of how they betray the teaching as opposed to a general betraying of the teaching. So as you know, I coached basketball this year, and one of the other fathers who was coaching with us was advising his son and saying to his son, you have to pass, you 
cannot be greedy. When you dribble down the court, just because you can always shoot the basket doesn't mean that you always should. He was hitting him with this advice. And the young man, who's a very talented boy, kept saying, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. And his father would wait for him to say that and then repeat it. And then repeat it. And at the end, his father told him when he said okay for the last time, if you heard me, why aren't you doing it? I rest my case. And that's what Paul's doing here. You can feel the church saying, okay, Paul, okay, Paul, we get it, please stop. We promise, we get it. And at the end, when you think he's finished, he lets you know he's not finished. The Lord is coming, but before the Lord comes, I am coming. And when I come, I'm going to arrange things. But did you just arrange them? I'm not sure you got the message. He stopped, but he's not finished. <laughs> Thanks very much. Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.